Good morning. So glad you came today. Um, we do have one more announcement. Um, um, so today is a unique day of joy for us. Um, we're baptizing folks, um, and it's exciting. Um, if you are being baptized today, I just want to say that we are overflowing with thankfulness and gratitude as to what the Lord is doing in your life, and we're super excited that we get to play a small part in that today. So we're very excited to get to that part of the service. Um, if you're a guest today, you caught us um, in the middle of a series, a conversation through the book of Acts. Um, so if you can open your Bible to Acts 9, uh, and while you're doing that, if you have your Bible, if not, it'll be on the screen, but while you're doing that, I'm going to give you uh, some why behind the what as to why we are sitting with the book of Acts in this season right now. So like Josh was mentioning, right, I don't know about you, the waters of life feel stormy. Anyone going to amen on that one? Um, there are destabilizing forces that have been working in our culture and society that just makes it, I mean, the boat's been rocked to say the least, right? And if I've felt a sense of acute personally and societally, right, at large, a sense of angst and upheaval, like in my own life, and I don't say this lightly, a sense of spiritual attack, if I'm honest, right? And I've, uh, I've just kind of been feeling that. This has been a very disorienting season for many people for many different reasons. In week one, uh, we said this, it seems like a lot of lovely, Jesus-following, church-attending people have lost their way amidst the cultural storm that we find ourselves, all right? So let me tell you why I say that, okay? Number one, the lack of love that is so clearly betrayed, portrayed in so many self-prescribed Christians when it comes to disagreeing about political or cultural issues. Am I the only one that has seen an appalling amount of hostility and anger amongst people that say they follow Jesus? Am I the only one that's seeing that? You guys are talking to me today, man. I like that. That's awesome, right? So if you're on social media, right, you've seen a serious lack of patience. You've seen a lack of grace for anyone who doesn't applaud Whatever the cause is, you might be on for that moment, right? And we have this idea right now in our culture that if you disagree with me, you're an idiot. And it's appalling. I've never seen such a display of lack of patience and charity. Let me be honest, man. And related to that, number two, is the subsequent willingness of Christians, people who say, again, if you're not a Christian, you're off the hook. You're good. You can be a jerk. No one's holding you to a higher standard, right? If you're a Christian, listen to me, Okay. The, the subsequent willingness of Christians to sacrifice relationships, okay, and resign to a complete and utter isolation because of a difference of opinion in cultural issues, okay? So people walking away from communities, because this guy over here is a, a jerk about masks, and this one's super anxious, and okay, are we talking real? I mean, you're like, dude, this is church. Why are you coming out the gate so strong? What are you supposed to be in? Okay, just telling you what's going on, man. I'm telling you why we're doing what we're doing, okay? A disappointing lack of Christ-likeness and compassion today towards brothers and sisters, even inside the faith. And the sad part is, y'all, the prejudice that we see being flung around is totally justified in the minds of the people throwing it around, right? Can I just say, it feels like a kind of blindness 
has seized us. Primarily, blindness to the condition of our own hearts. We're just totally ignorant of the fact that we're being jerks sometimes, right? Because we're so fixated on the sins of others. And it turns out, right, it's like if someone's not perfect, you're like, oh, it's okay to be a jerk to them now. No, 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 right? So not only do I see, we're going to get to positive stuff later, I promise. <laughs> like, man, not only, I promise, not only do I see an acute sense of blindness towards the state of our own heart, but also, if you are a Christian, an apparent blindness to the methods of the enemy. That's what he does, y'all. Like, a simple lesson from warfare tells us divide and conquer. The wolf is going to drag the sheep away from the safety of numbers, y'all. Just simple, basic warfare, okay? So not only are we blind to sometimes the state of our own heart, we're apparently blind to the schemes of the enemy in this season, right? And it just feels like there's blindness happening. So as we have so many Christians have lost their way, when we are not walking in love towards all people, when, if you call yourself a believer, if you call yourself someone who follows Jesus, if you are not walking in love towards all people, do I need to qualify all people again? I've done that so many times. Okay, when you have abandoned his spirit for a spirit of anger and condemnation and even more try to affirm your own anger and condemnation by using him, you have lost your way as a Christian, okay? So when you lose your way, there are two points of reference, y'all. There's where we've come from and where we are going. And so it stands to reason if we find ourselves in a cultural storm in which we feel we have lost our way, and I'm just going to be honest, man, I'm, I'm, I'm there in ways. I can feel it in my own heart and life. If we find ourselves in a storm in which we are lost, we have two points of reference, where we've come from and where, so, where we're going. So therefore, it makes sense if we can sit with the birth of the church, Acts, where this came from, the shoulders on which we stand, we might stand a chance at figuring out where we've gotten off course, right? Because in the book of Acts, what we're going to see is a, uh, a paradigm, uh, a, uh, I can't think of the word because I don't have it written down, ideal, there's the word, an ideal of what it means to be a Christian in community. We see the picture that God had in his mind as he birthed this thing. So it stands to reason, if we can sit with that, maybe it will give us some compass marks to figure out where are we getting off course, right? So that's why we are sitting with the book of Acts, where this thing started. What were the dominating mindsets? What were the fundamental ideas that formed this small, religious, minority, persecuted sect to make it become today the most ethnically diverse religion on the face of the earth. I, I can't stop saying this, man. Like this thing started as a bunch of blue collar fishermen, nobodies, disenfranchised, persecuted on the outskirts of Palestine 2000 years ago. And we're sitting in Buford, Georgia talking about this man. Because every time the dude is proclaimed, every time his message is heard, something tends to happen. It's not just history. It's not just a person on the pages. It's not just a, a history lesson we're talking about today. Something has happened throughout the course of history that we are sitting here today, 2,000 some odd years later, because of this man, Jesus. And so we're asking the question, why, man? Like, what happened? What was going on in those dudes that would propel such a small persecuted sect to become what it is today, the most ethnically diverse, largest religion on the face of the earth. It befuddles the mind. If someone's pulling a prank, come on. Like, this is crazy. 
something else is happening, okay? Maybe you're like, y'all brainwashed. All right, all right, just hang with us. We'll just keep going, all right? Today, y'all, we are going to celebrate that Jesus is still doing the same thing he was doing 2,000 years ago. Like, undaunted by pandemics or politics, man. Dude, undaunted by nations rising and falling, man. No amount of disobedience or hate or darkness could ever stop his love from pursuing people. Nothing, man, nothing. Seeking and saving, redeeming, bringing new life into dead places. Y'all, he is faithful, unchanging, and his kingdom will not stop. It is unassailable in its strength. It is unstoppable by sickness, by nations, by kings, by presidences, by hatred, by violence. Even death itself could not stop Jesus. Amen. All right, man, you guys are with me. This is just great. <laughs> and today, despite all the chaos going on around us, we're going to celebrate his victory, not ours. So, there it is, why we're sitting with the book of Acts, okay? Today, we're gonna sit with what is a clear transition in the book of Acts, okay? What will be the first domino that starts the spread of Christianity amongst the Gentiles happens here. Up until this point, Christianity has been a religious Jew, uh, Jewish movement, just Jewish. And now there's this transition point in the book where it spreads outside, okay? Or it's, it's going to start to spread outside, okay? So I'm going to read you the story, then we're going to chat, then we're going to dunk people. Acts 9, um, we're going to read 1 through 31. It's a big chunk. It is narrative. It is story, so just enjoy it. Um, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is what these followers had begun to be called, followers of the way, if he found them, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Seven, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. So dude is wrecked, right? 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at that house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and then lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard, about, I've heard from many about this man, 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he, is cho- for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, interesting, the camaraderie that Ananias has already extending to this man, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon the name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. (laughs) Bro's barely been a Christian. Already coming after him, right? But their plot became known to Saul when they were watching the gates and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by the night, let him down through an opening in the wall, has to escape through a window, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were afraid of him for they did not believe he was disciple. So from every angle, bro is getting affliction here, right? But Barnabas, good old Barney, took him by the hand, brought him to the apostles and declared how he had on the road seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them. He is received at Jerusalem, okay? Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Second group in the first chapter of Bro Salvation trying to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So, th- so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And, ap- and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, I just ask, um, Holy Spirit, peace of God, would you come and rest in this room? Father, I pray for um, the heart in here uh, that feels very out of place. Lord, I pray um, for the eyes in here for whom the landscape seems distraught with obstacle. Lord, I pray for the heart in here that feels like the fog has moved in and it's hard to decipher which way to go. Jesus, would you come and speak peace to our hearts and minds so that we can sit with your scripture in a way that forms us and changes us in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Amen. So let's be real about Saul. He's a murderous gangster, right? He is seeking a license to kill from religious leaders. I can't stress this enough. The dudes that give him a license to kill are me in that present day and age. They are theologians, pastors, leaders of the community. Bro goes to them for a license to kill. And they're like, man, I like this guy. You know what? Here. He is so committed to this. He's like, hey, look, I'm going to go to Damascus. Give me some papers so that I can hold it up in front of anyone's face if anyone tries to stop me as I'm knocking down doors and, you know, flex cuffing people, right? He's going to follow these people. He's going to chase them down. He's going to drag them back in change, and he's got a license to kill. And he's, Saul's their golden boy, man. They're all, I mean, you can probably think, and in the synagogue, all these 
hoity-toity pastors up high saying, I like that guy. Paul, he's going to make some of himself. You know, he's got some potential. Boy, he's got energy. In fact, he describes himself as the creme de la creme of Israel pre-conversion in Philippians 3. He says, man, if anyone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he just goes and lists all of his accolades, religious accolades. I was circumcised on the eighth day, people of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, which means like, I'm just on top of it, man. I'm obeying everything. He says, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church. Like Paul had stuff going for him in his religious profession of the day. They were all, you know, they were all looking at him saying, we got to watch this kid. He's going to make something of himself. And he describes himself, not only here, but in two other places, as zealous for God. Now, zealous for God is an interesting phrase that a Hebrew would understand. If you were versed in scripture, when you hear the phrase zealous for God, that would bring something to their first century Jewish mindset. And this has meaning for Jews, okay? It's not just passionate. Zealous for God has with it a connotation of being violently passionate, Zealous for God has with it, I am willing to shed blood to defend the honor of God. And it has the first time we see zealous for God in the Bible is in Numbers 25 in a crazy story. Right, ready? So Moses and the elders, Numbers 25, are weeping, okay, because of the sins of Israel. Weeping, open court, right? They're just mourning over the sins, primarily that the men of Israel had begun taking Moabite prostitutes into the camp and worshiping their gods and doing all this stuff. So here Moses and the elders are weeping in the court and this dude takes a prostitute in front of them, walks by them into his tent, okay? So this kid, um, Phineas, who is the grandson of Aaron, so if you remember Exodus, Aaron, okay? So bro follows them into the tent and kills them both with one spear. Uh, I should have like PSA'd this, like this is not G-rated. Before that, sorry, the Bible's not G-rated. Kills them with a spear both at the same time. And, And he is known as zealous for the honor of God. Okay, so this word, zealous for God, has, it's not just, hey, I, I love Jesus. No, 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 it's like, I'm gonna draw some blood to defend the purity and the honor of this religion, okay? So this needs to be considered as well from Saul's perspective. Y'all check it, man. The nation of Israel had been plagued by false gods their entire history. False gods, false messiahs, right? What the, whole, the whole thing in the Old Testament is idolatry, idolatry. You're worshiping other gods, you're worshiping other gods, right? So think of it from Saul's perspective. Dude, this Jesus is just another false god. He's a false messiah, and he's leading away the people of God, and I'm going to do something about it, okay? So he is zealous for the preservation of his religion. And so it's brilliant how Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us all of these kind of snapshots of conversions, these snapshots of how God gets a hold of people. And this is the beautiful thing about it. It's different for everyone. There's all these snapshots in the book of Acts, through the whole book of Acts. We're going to see conversion after conversion after conversion, and almost not one of them is the same. It seems that we need different means to get our attention and often knock us off our high horse, which is exactly what happened to Paul, right? Here, Jesus like freaking drop kicks the bro. I mean, knocks him, literally knocks him off his high horse, blinds him, right? So poor, poor Ananias, 
I mean, he's just praying. He's like, go talk to this dude who's come to, to kill you and imprison you and take, and I mean, I feel sorry for the sap, you know? And then when he goes and prays for Saul, right? So I'm using Saul and Paul interchangeably. In Acts 13, uh, Luke uh, stops referring to Saul as Saul and starts referring to him as Paul. And he kind of uses it as a, uh, a shift in the identity of, of the man himself, right? So sorry if I'm using the two words interchangeably. Like, wait, I thought we were talking about Paul. It's the same, same guy. When, when Ananias goes and prays for him, when he is filled with the Spirit. So if you've been with us, we've been looking at all these instances of being filled with the Spirit. Dude, at that moment, there was very little pizzazz. No, no fire of Pentecost like we saw in Acts 2, right? No flash. I mean, the way Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, do you know what attaches itself with that experience? Scales falling from his eyes. Isn't that interesting? I mean, so many Christians attach all these things to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Oh, you got to speak in tongues. Oh, you got to see this. You got to see this. And yet for Paul, when he's filled with the Spirit, the effect is he regains vision. He begins to see, no doubt, see in a completely new way everything he's ever seen. I love that. Scales fall from his eyes. Dude is literally wrecked. I mean, imagine, just for a second, being convinced of your own rightness so much so that you are willing to shed blood. (laughs) That's in no way relevant to our cultural moment, is it? No, we, we just snipe people on Facebook from the comfort of our own couch, right? <laughs> so, so, so. For Paul, it was chasing down people, cuffing them and dragging them into prison. For us, we just, you know, <laughs> from Facebook, right? He is seeking to kill and imprison, y'all, those who thought differently than him. Can we make this a little more relevant for right now? He is seeking to kill and silence and imprison those who thought differently than him. You think cancel culture is a new, read some history, son. Cancel culture has been happening for, I mean, all this, okay, so anyway. Put yourself in his shoes. He was obeying God. He was doing God's work to preserve his people. And it turns out his attempts were actually destroying the very faith he thought he was preserving. And he personifies a terrifying position for many of the religious leaders, which is to be at the center of religious experience while never experiencing God himself. So doing the thing, going to church, knowing the words, learning the Christianese, you know when to raise your hands, when this, you, know, you, know, you know how to say, you know, when washed, you know the whole thing, right? And yet never submitting to experiencing God in and of himself. It's a horrible and terrifying predicament that we see amongst the religious of their day and continues to this day. How did that happen? How does that happen? How do you grow up in church, live in a, you're like born on the pew, right? You just grow up and know all the things and not know anything about God himself. How is it that we can be in the center of religious life and be miles away from the experience of God himself? Well, at least in one way, we can maybe this. Here, I'm gonna just submit this to you, right? I think that the Pharisees and Paul had set up their religion as simply another means to exert control over their own lives and over the lives of others. Can I just say to you, if being a Christian is simply one of the tools with which you try to employ a sense of control over your life, you have missed the fundamental thing of what it means to be a Christian. 
If you, so in other words, if you see Christianity like going to the gym, I'm gonna get healthy. Like if, if you think that Christianity is a means by which you employ your sense of control over your life and over the lives of others, you have missed it entirely. Primarily the fundamental thing you've missed is which Paul sees very quickly, which is that Jesus is Lord. He's in control. Like Paul didn't even know the dude, thought he was worshiping him, didn't even know him, but the first second he sees him, he realizes this dude's in control, not me. For him, up until that point, religion had been a way to control his life instead of surrender control to his life. If you do not know God as Lord, then you do not know him. He is revealed to us as king. And if he does not have a place of kingship in your life, you don't know him. Paul did not know him, but when he met him, he knew exactly who was in charge and it wasn't him, right? Paul seems to understand it very quickly. Who are you, Lord, okay? If Christianity leads you to condemn and hate others in contempt, then you can equally say that you don't know him as savior either, someone who has rescued you and he is both Lord and Savior, and both of those words have obvious ramifications in the way in which we live, don't they? So, because of the disconnect, Saul was attacking the very thing he was committed to. His whole worldview was shattered, flipped on its head when Jesus engages him. And when Jesus engages him, he says, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting, isn't it? Paul didn't even know him. And yet, when Jesus engages him, he says, why do you persecute me? Some of you need to, need to look at me right here for this one, okay? When Saul is hating and condemning and causing heartache and sorrow for the church, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Apparently, Jesus is so intertwined with his people. The relationship is so intimate, almost like that of a husband and wife, that Jesus sees himself as one with his people. Riddle me that, y'all. You and me <laughs> with all of our inconsistencies and failures and sins and doubts. When we say yes to him, Jesus sees himself as one with us. When we surrender to Christ, we become what scripture would call a part of the body of Christ. Well, what's that mean? Well, it means that now you're a part of his purposes in the earth, man. You're an extension. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, you are an extension of the love of Christ himself, not your love. You ain't got that kind of love, man. You're an extension of his love to the world, right? You maintain your identity, your giftedness, your uniqueness, and you are able to live out of his identity as well. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Later, Paul would talk about this mystery of Christ in the church being one in Ephesians 5. So, but Jesus seems to think when you persecute the people of God, you are persecuting him. Some of you think you are doing the church a favor by sitting in a place of condemnation over them. And Jesus has things to say to you today. Now, will the people of God need correction and rebuking? And re yes, absolutely, right? It's like half the Bible is what that is, right? But if your end goal isn't redemption and flourishing, you're just condemning and accusing, y'all, that's the enemy's job. Stop doing the enemy's job for him, okay? He is the accuser. Jesus literally had to knock Paul off the platform of his own self-confident moral high ground to get his attention. 
And there's no doubt in my mind that God has to do that with many of us as well. Okay, boom, snapshot number one of how God got a hold of someone, all right? And then, so that's pretty dramatic, right? Flashes of light, blindness, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? But then y'all, Acts 16, you have a snapshot of the conversion of Lydia. You know what it says about her? I love this, right? It says Paul, you know, Paul's then now preaching the message to the Gentiles, she's a Gentile, and it just says this, the Lord opened her heart to respond. And boom, she's saved. I love that. Totally no flashes of light, no blindness, no fire. God just does an internal work in her and boom, opens her heart. She's saved just as impactful as Paul's conversion in a completely different way. And then you have an Ethiopian in chapter eight, right? All he needs is someone to come alongside him and explain what the scriptures mean. So God uses the scripture, boring old Bible, right? Uses the scripture and the testimony of a, of a Christian and boom, he's saved, right? Acts 10, kind of like this one, God uses dreams and vision to save Cornelius. Acts 8, signs and wonders are employed in Samaria. Acts 17, it says people just heard. They just heard, just heard Paul talking and they got saved, right? So there's all these amazing snapshots of what it means or the, what it looks like to decide, man, I'm in on this. And what can these things then mean for us? Well, number one, don't let anyone ever hold some, um, some experience over you that you're a lesser of a Christian because you haven't had the same experience they've had. It's nonsense. Read the Bible, okay? So many Christians like to just kind of domineer over other people and say, well, you haven't had this experience. You're a tier one Christian. I'm a tier two Christian, right? And it's just nonsense. Sometimes God saves you through the foolishness of some dude dummy like me sitting there talking. And sometimes he saves you through knocking you off your horse. There's all different. God will employ any and every means to seek and save the lost. He will redeem and breathe new life into dead places using whatever means he can find. In his, all right, we're going to clap. Are we going to clap? Okay. <laughs> we're going to clap. I love it. He is relentless in his pursuit. And here's the beauty of God's pursuit. This is even more. And this is just fraught throughout the scriptures, that it is God's pursuit of you. Look at me. God's pursuit of you is not once and done. Look at me. It's not once and done. God doesn't just pursue you and say, okay, got you in. Now I'm out. See you later. Good luck. God's pursuit of you is relentless, repetitive, continuous, over and over and over again. God will use anything he can and will use to pursue you and get you called the hound of heaven, just chases us down. Not because we're worthy. Not because we got sweet skills, right? <laughs> Bow staff. Not because you're attractive. It's not because you think you have great things to offer. In fact, Scripture's gonna say the best thing you could ever offer God's like filthy rags. He pursues us because he has decided to pursue us. And therefore, his love for us is not dependent on us in any way or shape. God has decided that you are worth dying for. And he will and has employed every means to get your attention. You think it's a coincidence you're sitting here today? Just randomly? You think God is chasing you down? Wanting to say, I love you. I've been chasing you down since day one, pursuing you, even now. So I love Paul because he's a troublemaker. 
Got a little bit of that in me. I kind of like that. He is first causing trouble for the church and immediately starts to cause trouble for the Jews, right? And take literally two different groups in the first chapter of his conversion are trying to kill him, okay? Don't even get through one chapter of being a Christian before he has to flee two different cities, not to mention the, ter- the disciples themselves are terrified of him. They're like, he's a mole. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to jump out. I got you. He's going to you know, cuff you. So they're all terrified of him, right? But despite that, stay with me. We're, we're wrapping it up. Despite that, Paul would write about that wrecking moment, that being knocked off his horse, that being blinded, knocked on his butt by Jesus. He will write about that moment as the best thing that ever happened to him over and over and over again. But that didn't mean it was easy. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus said, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. No one signs up for that. (laughs) We talked about this earlier in the story, right? At one time, Peter's preaching. Mid-sermon, dudes come in and handcuff him and drag him off the stage. And as he's being drugged off the stage, he's like, if anyone wants to become a Christian, just come down to the front. And 5,000 people come down. I'll sign up for that, right? Like clearly something else is happening, right? So for him, becoming a Christian meant hitting immediate opposition. And I'd argue today, when we turn to God in surrender and yield more of ourselves to him than we had the day before, we should expect obstacles and opposition and conflict to come out of the blue, right? Because like what we said earlier, the simplicity of warfare, y'all, It's those on the front lines, it's the boots on the ground that are targeted by the enemy. The enemy, think of war. The enemy has no reason to go after those on the benches of mediocrity. You're just not a threat. Those safe and insulated, unwilling to risk, are just not a threat. It's those saying yes. Those that are on the front lines are exponentially more exposed to attack, and the same is true spiritually. When we say yes to God, we put ourselves on the front lines and should not be surprised uh, when, blue, when obstacles out of the blue begin to assault us. Despite that, Paul would go on to say that the suffering he endured, which was not light, right? He would call it light and momentary and insignificant compared to the weight of glory being revealed in him and the transformation that Jesus wrought in his life. Paul, y'all, more so than any of us, would know the reality of suffering brought on by following Jesus and therefore can say to us with authority that knowing the power of Jesus, living and active in your life far outweighs any amount of suffering or attack you may have to endure because of your decision to follow Jesus. He would say this later on in his life. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As Christians, seen from this text that we've read today, you are not promised physical safety. Wouldn't that be lovely? I'd love to tell you that you are promised that, but you're not. And so we just read, right? We are not promised material comforts, and we are not promised insulation from danger. We are promised God himself. That's what we get. That's what we get. We get God. We get his love, his strength, his power. And according to the Bible, it is more than enough to fill us up with joy and strength and love, even for our enemies and even in the midst of persecution, trials, and affliction. So I want to share something today that I've never shared from this pulpit. Um, I'm going to share three moments in my life 
that have served as watershed moments, okay, um, that have proven to me that God is pursuing me and us despite ourselves. And the first is what I would consider this. So it's just a little, I'm sharing because some other people are about to share too. Thought it'd be fun. The first is my, my conversion. I'll be quick, all right, I'm gonna wrap it up. I was honestly a little bit more like Lydia. I pastor's kid, call him a PK, grew up in the church, PK, right? Pastor's kid. So, so like baptized when I was seven, dude, I knew all this stuff. And, and so Lydia was described as a God-fearer before her conversion, right? So, I mean, I, I did the whole thing. But when I was 17, this is crazy. Even if you're not a Christian, you're gonna be like, that's crazy. Um, I was driving home from a youth group and the dude that was speaking said this. He said, God wrapped himself in flesh and died for our sins. And I was like, what? I'm telling you, man, it was weird. I, I grew up in the church. I was, a pastor. I was like leading worship. And that was just like, what? Jesus was God's son? He was God? And if like, even if you're not a Christian, you're like, yeah, dummy. Everyone knows that. I don't know. Like, it, I, I didn't know it. I was driving home just befuddled. It's like, for some reason, it's a full moon that night. It was just weird. I was just driving home and like, what? God wrapped in, he died for us? Weird. That, I always look back at that weird moment as this kind of watershed that something happened in me, right? And the second is, is much less enchanting. <laughs> um, the second moment was that when I was neck deep in sin as a worship pastor in church, right? Spiritual leader, completely spiritually bankrupt in my life, all right? I, I, I was in a place uh, very much that represented that season in my life. And I looked up on the wall and there was a crucifix. For whatever reason, something just broke in me. And I start weeping, like sobbing like a baby uncontrollably. I run out of where I was. I get in my car, I drive home and I call Duck, who's not here today. He was supposed to lead worship. He wasn't feeling well. He's my friend. I've known him for a long time. And the only thing I could say through tears was I don't know God anymore. Now you'd say, well, that's a horrible moment, Chris. Thanks for sharing. Well, not all of the times that God meets us are on the mountaintop, y'all. Sometimes it's in the valley. And not even more than that, we think of valley as lush places. Sometimes it's in the valley of the desert, of the shadow of death. And yet God still pursues us even when I was running from him in the opposite direction. Ain't nothing crazy and mystical about a crucifix. I just looked up and saw it. I was reminded that someone loves me, not because I'm awesome because he loves me. And it broke something in me, like a dam broke loose. And I just wept the whole way home. God meets us in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of places. And the third is this, and this sticks out more recently in my story and clear evidence of God pursuing me despite my inner numbness as a Christian for 20 odd years, something like that. And it happened when I was a professional Christian. <laughs> I was working at, at a church in Atlanta, okay? It's really the story of how I ended up here. Um, and despite my role in ministry at the time, right, if I was honest, I was kind of what Christians would call in a dry, in a dry place, right? Um, my soul just felt kind of barren. Uh, I, like if, you would if I were to describe the inner, inner reality of my heart at that time, it wouldn't have been a garden. It would have been a desert, okay? Uh, the, the vibrancy of life, the joy of life had just kind of faded, had leaked out through your hands. Anyone relate to that? You know, when it seems like joy, it's kind of like sand and the harder you grip, the more it just kind of leaks out. Right? So I was kind of there. I wasn't enjoying God. I wasn't talking with him. And uh, I um, was asked to go to Montana. It's pretty epic. 
um, to lead worship at this small retreat, okay? And uh, something was happening with my voice as I was a worship pastor. This is kind of an interesting bit. I had basically lost the ability to sing. Um, so I was a professional leader, singer guy at a church, just like Matt was doing. I did that for a living. And about three years into that job, I lo- my voice just dried up, just disappeared. It was super frustrating, to say the least. Like, I had some words with the Lord, let's be honest, right? Um, but I was asked to go to Montana and, and to uh, lead worship for this kind of small group, right? And um, leading up to that retreat, me and my wife had kind of committed to praying about, Lord, where are we going to go? Like, what's, what are you going to do with, with us? Are we going to move away from our church down here? Are we going we gonna, to, you know, cut away from there? Are we going to do this? So we didn't really know what was going to happen. But in that retreat, we just felt like God maybe was going to talk to us. Well, we didn't know. Maybe hopefully he's going to strike us with lightning, something really clear and, you know, simple for a dummy to understand. But nothing really happened. But the last night of the retreat, um, the, the bishop, which was the guy in charge, like, he was my boss's boss. So that was the retreat I was leading for my boss's boss. He says last night, hey, let's pray um, for Chris and Allison. And so it was unprovoked. Of course, I'm not going to tell him, hey, man, we're kind of like praying about maybe leaving your church. You know, I'm not going to say that. Um, so he, he puts his hand on me. I'm, I'm wrapping up. And, and uh, the first thing out of his mouth is, Chris and Allison, it's my wife, I feel like God's about to lead you through a serious life transition. And, and my, my wife laughed out loud at the bishop. You know, it was, and, and even more, you know, these jokers are like Anglicans and Presbyterians, all right? They don't, they don't like drop God told me so every five seconds, okay? They're not that kind of people, all right? They're reserved and dignified, you know? Uh, but they begin to pray for us and, and they begin to speak things over our lives that I never could have told them or that they would ever would have known. One of them said this. I had raised my hand several times to, to get in a position of, of, of teaching at the church that I was at and was basically told, no, <laughs> hand slapped. One of them said this, Chris, I feel like you're about to get into an arena. Uh, I feel like you have gifts that you're not using, that you're about to get into an arena where you can use them. I thought, okay, that sounds cool, you know, whatever, maybe, sounds cool, whatever. Then one of them said this. He said, this is weird. He said, Chris, I see a big pair of scissors. And I was like, do I need a haircut? I don't know what the deal is. And he said this. He said, you know, I think, I think God is saying there's about to be a cutting away in your life. And at that moment, I just lost it. I just start weeping because that was the question we were asking. God, do we cut away from where we're at? Do we relocate our life up to this church to begin helping with this? Or do we kind of ante up and go into that? And we, that, I mean, so after sobbing and crying, whatever, he was like, you know, what's going on? And I was like, well, we've been praying about leaving. I think God just spoke through you to tell me that we should leave your church, you know? And you could see, he was like, um, so, I mean, maybe you're like, that's weird. Yeah, this is coincidence. That's all right. The people with Paul, like they just saw a flash, didn't hear a voice, or they just saw, you know, whatever. They saw half of it. But for me, it was very clear, right, that, you know, this is the course you're going to go on. And the funny thing is, this is just to top it off, then we're going to get to the baptism. We get home, like 12 o'clock that night, get out to the car from the airport, and the battery is dead on my car, right? So we're like, oh, great, okay. So we get, we get the car, jumped off. We get home like at 2 a.m. We, we go into our house, we turn on the lights, and it ended up, lightning did strike our house and broke our air conditioning and fried my wife's hard drive. So we walk into a house that's like 90 degrees and then we turned on the lights and roaches had moved into our house. So we turn on the lights in the kitchen. It's like that thing, you know? So we were like, all right, we're on the right course. 
We thank God. We thank us, you know. Yeah, it's crazy, y'all. Um, but the point is this. Um, God pursues us. Even in our numbness and dryness, he relentlessly gets in our way. And I believe for some of you, God's getting in your way even right now. So today, we get to rejoice um, with friends um, for whom Jesus has become a primary force of influence in their life. We get to rejoice in that moment. Um, if you're getting baptized, come on up. 